So, Walker. Hi, Mark. Have Have you ever heard the name Stanislav Petrov? You know, I haven't. You know, I'm, I don't think most people have. And I hadn't uh, until fairly recently when I started looking into this topic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story quickly because this guy, Stanislav Petrov, he might have single-handedly saved the world. And, and no, one, no one knows his name. So, so it, was, it was 1983, right? This is a time of severely strained relations between the U.S. and the USSR. Just weeks before, the Soviets had accidentally shot down uh, a South Korean passenger jet. Plus, the U.S. had been deploying Pershing-2 missiles and other cruise missiles in, uh, in NATO countries that could strike the USSR within minutes. So they were kind of freaked out. And beyond that, you know, Ronnie Reagan was now in the White House and his madman philosophy was in full swing. And the U.S. was basically being just fucking aggro, just aggro as fuck. <laughs> why, why we got to be so aggro? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. It was a crazy time. Um, but yeah, so they're playing all these war games. They're, they're freaking out the Russians and relations between, you know, the U.S. and the USSR had deteriorated so severely uh, that according to like many historians who have gone back and looked at this era, uh, you know, the entire Soviet military system was on hair trigger alert. And they, they were really expecting us to attack them uh, at any moment. So this is the climate um, in which Stanislav Petrov, who was a colonel in the uh, Soviet air defense, saw alarms start flashing on his uh, early warning radar system telling him that the U.S. had just launched a nuclear first strikes and that the ICBMs were inbound. Uh, he checked the system. He checked it again and again. There didn't appear to be anything wrong with it. And all the while, these missiles were going, were growing closer and closer. So, so what you're saying is he's checking the system. He's checking it twice. Yeah, he's, he's, he's trying to he's make gonna sure. I <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, couldn't think of anything else to rhyme with that. But, you know. This is less, this is not Christmas. This is like if Christmas happened in, <laughs> in nuclear winter. <laughs> um, so Petrov had one clear and simple thing to do at this point. Uh, report this Im imminent attack um, up the chain of command immediately. This is what he was trained to do. And, you know, this was really ingrained in all these commanders there. And so this action would have set off a cascading series of events, which it, within minutes would have led to an all-out retaliatory strike by the Soviet Union. Now, in turn, the U.S., which, you know, in reality, fortunately, hadn't actually launched any nuclear weapons, uh, because it turns out that this warning message was, in fact, a glitch. So they would have seen, the U.S. would have seen all these missiles from the Soviet Union inbound. They would have seen it as a bolt from the blue attack, and within minutes, uh, we would have retaliated with hundreds uh, or maybe thousands of our own ICBMs, sub-based missiles, and, uh, and aircraft-based missiles. And, and that, would have, that would have been the end of the world, essentially. You know, it's, it's, I was going to say, I, I don't think I've heard of this, uh, you know, this, this nuclear holocaust that you are referring to. Well, fortunately, fortunately it didn't happen. But, you know, ha had Stanislav Petrov done what he was supposed to do... Um, you know, it, it, all these missiles would have been launched. Now, if you were within the radius of, um, of the fireball or the thermal pulse of one of the thousands of nuclear weapons, which would have been raining down and exploding on, on the world that night, 
uh, you would have been incinerated instantly. So this is a relatively fortunate fate for you in, in this, you know, near scenario that happened in 1983. If you're, if you're a little bit farther out from the blast center, you might be lethal, lethally um, irradiated um, by the initial burst of ionizing radiation from the blast, or you might be crushed to death uh, by the blast wave or by, you know, the falling debris that would be coming down, you know, everywhere in cities and towns. Uh, you know, you'd be crushed under the rubble or you might be burned to death because when these things explode, you know, if you're a little bit farther out from the blast, it's still so hot that it sets off massive, massive firestorms. This, nuclear explosions are no fun, right? So if you escape... Well, there go my vacation plans. <laughs> exactly. You're going to have to cancel that, that Airbnb. Um, but if you were lucky enough to escape one of these fates, you, uh, you might likely die of radiation poisoning then a few days later or weeks later from the nuclear fallout. Um, or, you know, a little later on, you could die of starvation because the effects of nuclear winter would surely have set in and the ecosphere of the Earth would have collapsed. Uh, or, you know, maybe you'll be killed by other people um, who are after your resources because the economies and the governments would have collapsed and it would just be this, this Hobbesian, like Mad Max-style hellscape going on with people just, you know, the, the few survivors killing each other for food. Um, so likely billions of people would have met, you know, one of those fates listed above if Stanislav... Petrov. But what I, <laughs> what you, what you saying? I, I was just going to ask, like, but in, in that latter situation, you know, where, where I survived the initial blast and now I'm in a nuclear winter at, at that point, do I get a cool car and like some armor and it could and, be fun. It could be fun. You know, we're, we're in quarantine times. Life's kind of, kind of boring. We're all cooped up inside. So, Hey, yeah, you know, yeah, there's you a know, silver like, lining. You could, yeah, I've seen fury road. <laughs> And, and, and Thunderdome. Those, I mean, those you know, guys do look like they're having a good time. They, they do, you know, and they, especially when they spray the, the chrome in their faces, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you and could witness, find something like, put, me, Mark. put on a spiky jacket. Exactly. That's, yeah, you, you, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, look like a punk from the 80s, except, <laughs> you know, in, a, in the apocalypse. Okay, so f for most people on the planet, except for Walker, this, this would have... Uh, <laughs> Walker would be living his best life, but, but, um, you know, billions of people would be dead. Um, if, if Stanislav a small price to pay <laughs> for the return of 80s fashion. Uh, I, I don't think there would be good music though, unfortunately. Um, but so again, Petrov thankfully did not do what he was supposed to do and carry out his orders on that night in 1983. Um, so he didn't report the inbound missiles, um, and it was later confirmed that, you know, as I said, it was a glitch uh, that had triggered the early warning system. But, you know, Petrov says anyone else on the base that night probably would have just carried out the orders. He, he had, the thing is, he came from a civilian background, and he said it was, it was his civilian training that, um, that prevented him from from reporting this up he he you know he wasn't a uh a dyed in the wool you know highly trained soviet military type who would just mindlessly follow out the orders well it's such an impossible situation because like at that point you assume that you're going to die and the only question that you face is do i do i kill you know millions hundreds of millions of people as well 
Yeah, so that so that gets into kind of some of the 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 game theory about you know this uh, uh, the our, our whole posture um, around uh, around assured destruction and um, you know having these ICBMs on on hair trigger alert you know launch within ten minutes at all times, which they have been um, you know for the last seventy five years almost. Um, well, since ICBMs were developed, I think, you know, towards the later 50s. So, Did he ever get, like, a Nobel Prize? So this this guy, this guy more than anyone on Earth, probably deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. But, uh, no, he didn't. Um, he said he wasn't, puni- <laughs> he wasn't punished, um, <laughs> but uh, he wasn't awarded either. I think it was just too embarrassing for the, uh, you know for the Soviets who had you know, engineered this, this warning system Wait. that failed so nearly catastrophically. So this guy who single-handedly saves humanity by making the hardest, most selfless decision that a human being could possibly make uh, in those circumstances has not been awarded anything for his, for his trouble. He wasn't punished, but that, that seems like the least they could do this man deserves a fucking medal no he um i think he he went into something of an early retirement he says it wasn't a forced retirement and uh he had a nervous breakdown and i, yeah, think I mean he... yeah <laughs> no, sh- <laughs> but he lived he, he lived a long life he died he died um only a few years ago well it's a shame that we can't get him on the show yeah yeah we tried reaching out um <laughs> so uh <laughs> But so, how did we get into a situation where something like this w- was even possible? Where something like this could happen? Where you know the fate of the world rested on the shoulders of of one courageous man, Stanislav Petrov, who was you know wise enough not to follow through on his duties. Something tells me that's what we're going to discuss today. So that's that's what we're going to discuss uh, today. Um, so n- no nuclear weapons have been used right since World War II. But, but by the mid-1980s, the world had accumulated a combined 50,000 bombs, right? 50,000 bombs and war, warheads with a combined force of 22.5 thousand million tons of TNT, or a, right about at, you know, one and a half million Hiroshima's. Um, what, what would that do to the planet, exactly? I mean, I, I, obviously it would... Like if it, all of them went off, I mean, would it, would would it just explode? Would it, would well, it cease to exist? That's the thing. I mean, um, it wouldn't just be people in you know the USA, Russia, and you know as we'll learn, uh, the the United States at that time was going to target China and take them out, as well as most of Western Europe, you know, as their <laughs> as their retaliatory you know game plan just for good measure. Um, but it would destroy the ecosphere of the Earth. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gilded Age. I'm Mark Colangelo. And I'm Walker Bragman. And today, we're going to discuss the nuclear holocaust. Right. So where we left off, Walker, we said there's now there were by the mid '80s there were fifty thousand bombs and warheads. Right now, Robert McNamara said in in 1986 that just 150 of those 
um, could destroy not just the United States and, and its allies, but you know the rest of the world through atmospheric effects. Um, just just 150 of those could could end the world. So we had 50,000. Um, 50,000. So, so so that that's in that's insane. Um, it's been reduced since then, but um, you know, according to the Doomsday Clock, which is set by the Atomic Bulletin of Scientists, um, we're actually more at risk of nuclear annihilation right now um, than at any point in in history and in the Cold War. We we just it's it's not on people's um, it's not top of mind for people anymore since since um, you know the fall of the Soviet Union, but the threat is uh is very much still there i mean you think about it you've been walking around your whole life and your parents have been walking around their whole lives um you know with a with a in a world that's basically just rigged to self-destruct uh within 10 (laughs) minutes at any moment and like you know we, we that that scare in hawaii where they uh i think it was like last year at some point uh where they the the nuclear alert uh, went off and everyone on that island thought they were going to die for about 20 minutes. Like that, that really things, incidents like that really kind of make the threat real. Um, so let's, let's, let's take a step back and, um, we'll talk about, you know, how these bombs came to be. How we got here. I like and, that. And, and how we got here. Right. So, you know, uh, HG Wells, he, uh, yeah. the guy who wrote the, the time machine, um, few other good books well hg wells uh i may, I may have heard of him <laughs> he may actually have been the the first person to come up with the idea of the atomic bomb um so in, he wrote this book called the world set free in in 1914 so a while ago um and he he imagined um a uranium-based hand grenade uh that harnessed the energy inside the atom this uh you know, the, these in his book, there were pilots flying around just biting off the fuses uh, in little biplanes, mind you, because this was not not long after, um, you know, uh, the first flight, uh, the Wright brothers. Um, so they're flying around, biting the biting the tops off these nuclear hand grenades and hurling them down <clears throat> on unsuspecting cities below. Now, a uh, couple decades later, this physicist by the name of Leo Zillard read this book um, in 1932. And this was, you know, there's a ton of other stuff going on in the physics community. This was like the golden age of, of physics. Um, this was about the same time that the neutron was discovered. So he took some inspiration from this book and from what he knew about the neutron, um, this new neutron discovery. And um, he conceived of the idea of a, a nuclear chain reaction using you know, a he- heavy element like uranium. Um, and he filed patents on it. Oh, patenting the doom, <laughs> patenting doomsday. So, so how how was um, Wells so prescient? Right, he wrote this book in 1914. Well, like I said, there was this was the golden age of physics. There were you know tons of discoveries, and Wells was very um, very kept up to date on all this stuff, and he used it as inspiration for his book. So, you know, by the early 20th century, scientists understood that there were vast amounts of energy. Um, locked up inside the atom in, you know, that, you know, that E equals MC squared formula. Yeah. I may have heard of that too. So, so what that says is that there's an equivalence between mass and energy, right? Because you're multiplying the mass side 
um, by the speed of light squared, which is a huge number, right? It's a number, I think, 16 or 17 digits long. Um, and what that implies is that there is, again, an enormous amount of energy in even a tiny little speck of matter because, you know, energy, because of the, the equivalence there. So when um, the nucleus was discovered um, in uh, Ernest Rutherford's famous gold foil experiment in 1911, um, it was clear that this dense, dense center, this highly compact center at the, at the, um, you know, in the middle of the atom uh, was like a coiled spring just ready to explode. Um, and the only question that they asked themselves was, you know, how are we going to how do release this energy? How do we do it? Um, <laughs> of course. What's the line in Jurassic Park? It's like you got so obsessed with whether or not you could, you didn't think about whether or not you should. Exactly. I'm, I know I'm bastardizing that, but <laughs> I mean, the, 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 uh, you know, the timeless quotes of Ian Malcolm. Jeff, uh, who's that? Jeff, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, baby. If only he was alive back then, he could have stopped this whole I, thing from going off have. the rails. He, he could have. <laughs> you know, back in college, back in college in my, in my dorm, uh, on, on my, like my floor, in the bathroom, across from the toilet, when you would sit down, there was a picture of Jeff Goldblum and it said, Jeff Goldblum is watching you poop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so, so back to nuclear chain reactions, right? So that, that was what, um, that was, that was Speaking of nuclear chain reactions. No, sorry. So, so that was what (laughs) nuclear fission did. That was, that was one of the ways, that was the way they figured out that, you know, the, the energy could, you know, be unleashed. Um, and what, what, what Zillard came up with, you know, was the idea that if you can find an element in which, you know, when it, when, um, a neutron strikes it, it releases two or more neutrons. Those neutrons will go out if, if, the, um, if the material is arranged properly. Those other nu- neutrons will go out, and those two will or more will hit other atoms, which will in turn release more, and this will increase... A cascade. Exponentially, right? Releasing tons of energy. Um, and uh, so that was, that was basically the conceptual framework. Makes sense. Unfortunately, it was the Nazis who first figured out how to actually do it. <laughs> when, uh, when Otto Hahn and uh, Fritz Strassmann um, first uh, set off you know, the sustained uh, nuclear fission reaction in 1938. So shit just got real. We almost had a world where Nazis had nukes. I know. And it, it, could have, you know, it could have worked out that way. World War II would have would have you know ended very different. I think there's a show on um, Amazon Prime about that. Wait, that's that's the whole basis of that show. Yeah, what's the name of that show? Uh, Man in the High Castle. Yeah, I, I think. Oh God, so. are we doing a plug for an Amazon show on our <laughs> podcast? An un and not paid for plug for for an Amazon show. Yeah. God damn it. Well, God damn it! Let's not. For, okay, well, let's walk it back a little bit. Let's 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 remember. Let's remember that that show when in their advertising they decked out an entire subway car with uh, Nazi. Oh, I think I I think I rode in one of those cars. That was weird. Yeah, weird advertising. So, weird, <laughs> weird advertising. Very fitting for for Jeff Bezos. I imagine it could be triggering to some people who were around back then. 
Yeah. Who, who, whose idea was that? <laughs> I want to know the boardroom that that got decided in. Um, Just to have been a fly on the wall. Yeah. So, so again, so shit just got real and, and physicists understood, uh, exactly what they meant when they heard that the Nazis, um, had achieved, uh, nuclear fission. Um, so, uh, a few, few years later, uh, Zillard, Leo Zillard, um, the guy who had first patented, uh, his idea for a nuclear fission reaction, uh, drafted a letter to FDR and, uh, he took it to Einstein, uh, who was, you know, then, you know, as now one of the most respected uh, physicists who ever lived, uh, warning FDR of the potential uh, of a nuclear bomb and specifically of the Nazis getting it first. So this kick-started uh, what became known as the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project was... Uh, Many Bothans died to bring us this information. <laughs> <laughs> Led by... Um, led by the U.S., but also I think Britain and Canada were involved. And uh, that was where we developed the first nuclear bomb, which was tested at the Trinity site. And, um, and then not long after, uh, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, ending the war. I, I see, and I think we should acknowledge, we just came up on the um, 75th anniversary of, uh, of the bomb being dropped um, earlier That's in true. August. Um, so just want to acknowledge that, you know, I went and I looked at, um, some of the, uh, survivors recounting uh, what happened there. And it's, it's tr truly horrifying. You know, I, I outlined earlier in the episodes, like the, some of the fates that you might meet, uh, if you're in a city where a nuclear bomb explodes, but just, just seeing some of the, the footage from, from the ground there shortly after it happened and hearing these survivor stories, it's, it is, um, pretty, pretty horrifying. Um, so this is where the world and its leaders really had to confront the uh, impossible political, moral, strategic questions surrounding nuclear weapons. Um, so it can be debated whether dropping those bombs um, resulted in, you know, net less horror and suffering than um, would have resulted if the U.S. invaded mainland Japan. Uh, because it was estimated that, you know, between 1.7 and 4 million uh U.S. casualties would have occurred, and over 10 million Japanese casualties would have resulted uh, from a ground invasion. Um, so these bombs certainly ended the war sooner, and maybe ended up actually, you know, saving lives despite their horror. Um, because you know, Japan Japan was not in a position where they're ready to surrender. They're going to fight on the on the beaches, on the hills. They're going to fight down to the last man. And even after these bombs are dropped, the Japanese army was not ready to surrender. In fact, the emperor himself had to step in and announce the uh, surrender on the radio, and the military actually attempted a coup yep. to stop him. Right. So these, these were people living by you know, Bushido. They, they would really rather die than surrender. But to, to give people an idea, um, on August 6th, uh, the, the bomb was dropped on, Hiro on Hiroshima, and that flattened five square miles uh, and, just, and killed about 150,000 people. Uh, a single bomb dropped by a single aircraft. Right. And, and you know, on, on the other hand, um, there's the net lives saved um, argument. But, you know, Oppenheimer himself, who, who was the guy who led the Manhattan Project, pointed out that Japan was basically a defeated en enemy. 
Um, so to use nuclear weapons, you know, even if they're, even though they're going to fight to the death, they, they, they could not, uh, they, the country was destroyed. So to use nuclear weapons, they had no ability to make war. Um, so to news, use nuclear weapons on, uh, an enemy at all, especially in a situation in which it wasn't absolutely necessary, um, meant that, that we kicked the nuclear age off with quite a dangerous prece- precedent, right? Cause we showed that we were willing, more than willing to use these things, um, and uh, and as you started to point out, Walker, like the horror that it caused on the ground, um, you know, it, it's easy to look at numbers um, and square miles and casualty counts, but uh, and you know questions of the strategic value of it. But um, when you bring these things out of the the abstract, I mean, the horror is just is um, it, it's tough. It's tough to 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 look at and to face. Um, I think what instead of us telling you about it, we'll drop in a quick clip here about um, fr- from an actual survivor recounting some of the the horror that they that they faced that day. And and you know if you if you want to if if you're interested uh, and you want to see sort of a, a nation sort of grapple with with having that horror inflicted upon them, watch the first Godzilla movie called Gojira which came out in 1954 that was a direct response to the to the bombings on August 6th and August 9th on Hiroshima and Nagasaki respectively and the the pain of the of the of Japan is, as a nation the collective agony that that they were suffering um really does come across in this movie with images of people in the hospital beds, a prayer where they had 2000 schoolgirls sing this, this prayer that's just mournful and, and it's hauntingly beautiful, hauntingly. uh, Yeah. So I would, I would recommend to our listeners to go and watch um, the first, the first Godzilla movie. And you can, you can watch it on, um, on uh, archive.org. It's it's up there. Go 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 watch it. Um, and don't don't watch the American version where where we where we cut out references to that that made that made the uh, the allegory clear. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that whole dynamic. Um, so so something else that was going on another you know political um, dynamic at work as we were dropping these bombs was that. Truman, um, who made the decision to drop the bomb, was actually misled by his generals, right? They said they were going to be targeting military targets. Um, and it wasn't until after Truman learned that they had targeted um, civilian cities and some of the images of the devastation um, actually started to come out that um, he put his foot down. The, the military had plans to just keep dropping nukes uh, on Japanese cities, Um and so what he did was he, uh, he actually took the power away from the generals to make the decision to use these bombs. Um, and that was the beginning of what we still have today, which is, you know, civilian control um, and uh, the presidential sole authority of nuclear weapons, which causes its own whole slew of problems. Um, I mean, just look at who we have in the White House today. So if you're, if you're ever feeling anxious, just think about the fact that Donald Trump is being followed around every day, everywhere he goes. Uh, with the nuclear football, um, and he can launch, you know, an all-out nuclear strike on whoever he wants uh, at any moment. And it, you know, it, he wasn't the only, you know, unstable, unstable character that we've had in the White House over over the years. You know, you, you had Kennedy, uh, who was on, you know, 
a huge amount of pain meds all the time because of a back injury he suffered. You're about, we're about to get so much hate mail from uh, from angry Democrats. How <laughs> dare you compare John F. Kennedy to Donald Trump? Well, who, I mean, it, different different um, di- different scenarios at at work there. But you know, the the idea that um, the guy who is in charge of you know ending the world or not basically was you know hopped up on on pain meds. <laughs> did it did it affect his decision making skills? Um, who's to say, but he certainly did. He, he certainly, Kennedy, made you know, did, did seem to do everything that he, he, he made some errors, but he, he also did everything, you know, we'll talk about the Cuban missile crisis later. He did everything he could not to have the world end in a nuclear fireball. And this, you know, this was a preoccupation of his entire presidency. You know, how, how do we, how do we get ourselves out of this bind that we found ourselves in of, you know, mutually assured destruction? Um, we also had Nixon, who was quite unstable as a just as a character. Yeah, and he he was drinking pretty heavily, you know, towards the end of his presidency. So, it it is frightening um, that we put this power in one single person's hands. So, let's um so let's let's get back into it. Um, after we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan surrendered, and World War II was over. Um, and one of the first things the world did after World War II, right, was they founded the UN. Um, and one of the first things that the, the UN addressed, actually the first thing the US, the UN addressed was nuclear weapons. And uh, they created um, the UNAEC, the United Nations Atomic Energy um, Commission uh, Resolution Number 1 to, quote, deal with the problems raised by the discovery of nuclear energy. And... Um, there were a couple plans put forward to deal with this problem. And for a moment there, it looked like we could have gone down a different path. And, um, right. There was there Truman, Truman, if I, if I could just jump in here, Truman actually banned the proliferation of nuclear weapons. He stopped or he stopped, uh, the production of nuclear weapons thinking that the United Nations was going to ban them. Yeah. So, so that was, um, that was one of the ideas, uh, Put forward, the U.S. proposed the uh, the Baroque the Baruch plan, I believe it's pronounced, uh, in which the U.S. would give international control over its nuclear weapons in exchange for, uh, as you said, no other c- countries producing them. Um, so just stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons, you know, full stop, and the ones that did exist, the international community was would have control over. Um, now the USSR and Stalin did not like this very much because in their opinion, it would allow the U S monopoly on nuclear weapons to continue, which is true. Um, so the Soviets proposed their own plan. And then the plan that they proposed was, um, universal disarmament. Um, not only would we not produce any more nuclear weapons, um, and stop their proliferation, the U S would destroy the ones that it did have, but that plan didn't fly either. The U S did not like the idea of, you know, ending its monopoly on nuclear weapons. Both of these plans seem pretty reasonable they compared do, to where we they do compared seem to where pretty we reasonable, went. especially knowing you know the history of the next seventy five years. Um, so, but you know the grim, inescapable logic of nuclear weapons and deterrence um, had already set in. You know the clear value of being a nation with nukes instead of one without. Um, you know you tend to get invaded less if you have nuclear weapons. So even before. Nukes were nuclear weapons were developed. It was realized that um, 
there would be no way to defend against these weapons. So, you know, these two British physicists warned their government in 1940, um, before there even was a bomb, that uh, the only defense against nuclear weapons would be to have your own nuclear weapons as a <laughs> counter threat, right? So given the rules to this game, um, you know, it's not surprising that these US, UN resolutions failed to control proliferation. What stops a bad guy with nuclear weapons? A good guy with nuclear weapons. Exactly. And so, so that, that, is, that is deterrence and that is, you know, assured destruction or uh, mutually assured destruction as, it, you know, it came to be called, um, you know, almost pejoratively um, to, to criticize the whole logic of this thing. Um, but nevertheless... Nuclear programs were kicked off in Britain, France, U.S., Canada, Japan, uh, Germany, the USSR, and uh, we were well on our way to the nuclear arms race. So, so let's talk about uh, the Soviet development of a nuke, which happened a few years uh, after the uh, U.S. dropped the bombs on, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So Stalin was understandably you know, a little offended that the U.S. and Britain had left him out of the Manhattan Project. Um, and the Soviets knew all along that this bomb was being developed because they had spies at high levels within the Manhattan Project. And after seeing um, <laughs> the U.S. use it at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, all his doubts about whether this bomb would actually work vanished. And he was sure that the U.S. was going to use this weapon to try to intimidate the USSR, which... which we did, but to little effect during our brief monopoly on nuclear weapons, um, just as far as, you know, leverage in Berlin and, and that the whole negotiations that were going on there, um, trying to trying to break Berlin apart. Um, so he put the entire resources of the state behind developing their own. And he, uh, he appointed this brutal um, rapist secret police chief, Leventry Beria, to head the project and uh, with the help of, you know, tens of thousands of gulag laborers in uranium mines um, and the design for the fat man bomb that they had stolen from the Americans, the Soviets detonated their own uh, nuclear weapon on August 29th, 1949. Um, and this is where the nuclear arms race really kicked off because now, um, <laughs> the now US, they've got it. Now they've got it. And uh, we we're going to spend the next, few decades uh, in a posture of just pointing these things um, at each other. Oh, we're fucked. Yeah. And with that, a word from our sponsors. This episode of Gilded Age is brought to you by Raytheon. They say killing and maiming countless innocent people in faraway places is a man's game. They say women just can't cut it. At Raytheon, we beg to differ. We believe in the power of every woman to make cutting-edge breakthroughs in the field of mass death. That's why we're starting the Girl Scouts for Bombs program. Raytheon is empowering women every day, and nothing is more powerful than a Raytheon Paveway laser-guided bomb to destroy entire Yemeni wedding parties, including innocent children. And we are excited to announce that Raytheon will be launching a line of exclusive pink laser-guided munitions embossed with the phrase Namaste to show our support for women. Raytheon, exploding the gender barrier. So let's talk about what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, and for this section, I want to talk about a, a, a lot of information that comes out of a, a book called The Bomb, 
which was written by Fred Kaplan and published uh, earlier this year in, in January. So behind the scenes, you've got the Air Force, which is in control of basically America's nuclear arsenal. Even though it's in civilian hands, it's it's still, you know, the Air Force is the only branch of the military that has nuclear weapons. And this is unacceptable to the Army and Navy. And in, uh, in 1949, when the ship budget was cut in favor of bombers, top admirals staged a rebellion and condemned, they condemned the bomb both on moral and strategic grounds. So you have some of these admirals who are like, this is a horrific weapon. This shouldn't be used, blah, 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 blah. And then you have others who are like, this is not an effective weapon. One of the admirals actually said you could set off the bomb at one end of Washington National Airport and be standing at the other end and be totally fine. So it's like, it's pretty clear that their big problem with the nuclear with nuclear weapons is that they don't have any. So this this was just like internal, um, right? Defense department like fighting for resources between you know the army, the navy, and all these other branches. Right. And by 1952, the navy uh, and the army have nuclear weapons basically so so they're totally fine with because these things were um these things were getting smaller as we got better at, at building them and then so they could be it, you didn't you didn't need a huge bomber now to drop it they could be placed on um you know the the tactical air force the tactical air forces they're called so like uh you know the planes that the army had and the planes that the navy had exactly so now so now everyone has nukes and they're all nukes. they're all very happy now we all now we all love nuclear weapons we all love the bomb and so truman had said that the nuclear that that the atomic bomb wasn't even a nuclear weapon that he said that it, this thing is so terribly destructive it's not really a nuclear weapon uh, he said it was just used to wipe out women and children and um but ever since the military has tried to wrap it into normal military strategy. And actually in the fifties, that was the, the consensus among the, or, or relative consensus among the Eisenhower administration and the, and the joint chiefs was that nuclear weapons would be the first strike. So he, so he thought he said it wasn't a nuclear weapon in that it had no practical military purpose. It was just, he said it wasn't a military weapon. Yeah. yeah military weapon. So it's just for wiping out populations. Basically, it was a device for genocide. So he's yeah, exactly. He said that it was so terribly destructive, it wasn't really a nu- uh, a military weapon. And and you know, and that's there are some like Army Chief of Staff General Ridgway who resigns um, when the when the announced strategy becomes uh, any incursion, any anything provocation by the Soviets will result in a first strike uh, with all of our nuclear weapons. Um, and and H bombs. H bombs were developed in 1952. Yeah. So let, let's let's talk about the the H bomb, right? Because if you thought if you thought the fission bomb was bad, um, wait till you hear about the fusion bomb. But before wait before we do that, um, let's just keep in mind that the policy of the United States is that these weapons would be used not just in in any general war as a first opening as an opening salvo. And not just in large scale, large wars, but also even local wars where U.S. interests weren't vitally affected. So keep that insane, keep that insane strategy in mind 
as we talk about the, these H bombs. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the fusion bomb, and let's talk. Let's start with Edward Teller. Um, Edward Teller is a name you might have heard, and Edward Teller, very very smart guy, right? So he was on the Manhattan Project, and when the brightest minds of the scientific community uh, were clandestinely just straining the limits of, of human imagination and cognitive capacity to develop, you know, a weapon that would change the course of history. Ed Teller was he was kind of bored. Um, <laughs> He, he labeled uh, what they're creating with the fission bomb as, you know, just an atomic bomb. Um, as far as he as far as he was concerned, um, the fission bomb was just it was a mere engineering problem to him. Um, you know, the theory had already been cemented um, and he'd already moved on to, you know, higher yield ideas. Right. Namely, the fusion bomb or what he would simply call the, quote, super um, and he, he started working on this actually at the Manhattan Project. In fact, um, you know, due to his boredom with some of his work at Los Alamos uh, in his capacity in the theoretical division, he, uh, he ended up offloading a lot of his work to this guy, uh, Klaus Fuchs. Um, what a he fucker. was, yeah, Sorry. <laughs> complete, complete dork and, uh, and just like a traitorous, you know, piece of shit. Um, he also managed to get, uh, a job at Los Alamos. And he, he, uh, he was the guy that was passing off basically everything that we were doing in all our designs to the, to the Russians. Um, so actually, you know, he was one of the more consequential people in human history because it was his work that allowed, you know, the Soviets to develop their own bomb so quickly. Um, so as we mentioned, uh, fission bombs work by splitting the atom of, of dense, heavy elements like, like plutonium and, uh, and uranium and releasing the ma some of the mass uh, as energy. Um, fusion or thermonuclear bombs, on the other hand, would work by fusing together the uh, atoms of lower density, uh, atoms of lower density, like, like some um, you know, isotopes of hydrogen, uh, like deuterium and, and tritium. Um, and this is what powers the sun, by the way. So when we were blowing up a fusion bomb, it's like we're taking a little scoop of, of the sun and dropping it here on Earth. Uh, <laughs> it's not as pleasant as, that might, as it might sound. Um, so Ed Teller's equations did not work out at first. And um, the fission bomb was problematic enough, uh, you know, as far as the massive engineering projects that had to be undertaken to produce the fuel and other necessary components to scale up our arsenal. So Teller's idea really got put on the back burner, but then it had its moment basically because of the military industrial complex and their, uh, you know, just crazy, sadistic, nihilistic, murderous desire to have bigger and larger and, you know, more effective weapons of death. And to um, use them as an opening them. salvo. <laughs> and to use them as an opening salvo. Because apparently nobody in the military has any sense of proportionality. Right. So the, at so, this time. So our nuclear weapons program was in its infancy, uh, and we were trying to, to figure out where to invest these strained resources, uh, whether we wanted to just keep building up our arsenal of fission bombs or to try to take a stab at Teller, Teller's uh, super bomb. Uh, the brains behind these devices, the scientists themselves, were pretty firmly uh, in the camp of um, not even trying to produce them. Um, actually, two of the physicists on the Atomic Energy Commission, um, uh, Enrico Fermi uh, was one of them. Uh, he, he, uh, they, he drafted a 
letter to the to uh, the Atomic Energy Commission and the Defense Department that said, "quote uh, of of the hydrogen bomb, quote such a weapon goes far beyond any military objective and enters the range of very great natural catastrophes. By its very nature, it can't be confined to a military objective, but becomes a weapon which, in practical effect, is one of genocide. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light." So that is how, you know, many of the scientists uh, who were going to be developing these bombs felt about them. But the U.S. military, um, who hadn't even heard of the super or the idea of a thermonuclear bomb until that point, uh, they didn't agree with that assessment. Um, They insisted actually that, you know, we need a super bomb. Uh, We need it now. We need it possibly as an offensive weapon, as a deterrent, uh, possibly, you know, as an offensive weapon. Uh, And they assured... um, that they ass- they assured the uh, the scientists and the defense department that they, you know, did not intend to attack large cities with it per se, um, but only to attack such targets that are quote uh, necessary in war to achieve the goals of the U.S., um, which is kind of vague. That's that is kind of vague. <laughs> um, and so their entire posture is is you know one of, you know, bellicosity, and it's just this, you know, big dick swinging on the part of the military brass. Um, that, that BDE. Yes. Um, <laughs> who uh, were just intent on just putting the pedal to the metal, um, you know, on this hell ride to the nuclear brink uh, in this game of chicken that we were playing with the Soviets at this point. And part of the reason for this is, you know, remember, we were just coming out of World War II, um, and the, everyone in the military at that point, uh, was, you know, a veteran of World War II and World War II was really, uh, where we first started to see the lines between civilian and military targets, um, blur. It, it had really become a distinction without a difference. You know, even before the bombs were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you know, we were firebombing you know, civilian population centers, both, both sides were doing it. And it just, it became a tactic of war. So the idea that uh, a bomb that was only useful for wiping out cities and population centers and genocide, you know, was not a military weapon. This, this kind of, this didn't, this logic didn't um, resonate with them because they saw war as an all out um, thing. Right. Um, and, uh, and their only goal was to, you know, not let the U S fall behind, uh, in the ability to wreak this horror. Right. Well, cause if the, if the Soviets are going to, you know, if we, if we fall behind then the Soviets are going to do it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, another, another example of this kind of warped reasoning, um, and an argument actually made for pushing for the development of the H-bomb was that, you know, the joint chiefs of staff, speculated that refusing to develop a hydrogen bomb might be viewed um, by the world as the U.S.'s first step towards not having any nuclear weapons at all um, and might spur global pressure to disarm, uh, which would be which would disadvantage the U.S. Um, I mean, wouldn't that be a horrible thing if the if we just got rid of all the nuclear weapons? We couldn't couldn't have that happening. No, can't have that happen. This is basically gun control on the scale of nations. Yep. And so the official, the official statement from the Joint Chiefs of Staff said that, um, quote, offense 
recognized in the past as the best defense in atomic warfare is uh, now the only means of defense. So if a first strike policy made sense with fission bombs, doesn't it make just so much more sense with much bigger fusion bombs? Um, so the U.S. went ahead. Um, they solved some of the, the engineering problems that were vexing Teller, and um, they came up with what became known as the, uh, the Teller-Ulem design, um, which in which uh, we won't get too far into it. And I think a lot of this stuff is still classified, but they, they solved the problem of basically the, the fission reaction, which was going to be used to uh, initiate the fusion reaction. They solved the problem of that first nuclear fission explosion just completely destroying the fuel. And they found a way to actually um, separate the two cores, the, the, uh, the fission core and the, um, the hydrogen isotope core. And um, funnel the X-rays uh, from from the fission reaction to just compress the uh, the fusion core to supercritical state and actually achieve nuclear fusion. And they uh, they tested their first version of this bomb, um, a two-story just behemoth of a thing called Mike, um, and it w it was successful. And uh, and the USSR. Um, which, you know, were watching us very closely. They followed suit not long after. And now, um, instead of having weapons whose yields were measured in uh, kilotons being pointed at each other, we now had weapons whose, uh, whose yields were measured in megatons. Um, and a megaton is a thousand kilotons, just to give you a sense of scale. And um, some of these bombs that we were developing were, you know, 10, 20 megatons. I think the largest bomb ever exploded was 50 megatons. So these are just massive, massive weapons of destruction. So then to give to give everybody an idea, the, that puts into perspective our strategy of using them as an opening salvo, because the in, in March of 1954, the Joint Chiefs of Staff declare in a secret document, quote, in a general war, regardless of the manner of initiation, atomic weapons will be used at the outset. And that was based on a, a paper by the National Security Council and was signed by Eisenhower. And so, I mean, the, Eisenhower wanted to. Eisenhower was very afraid of, of spending. Uh, he didn't want to. He didn't want to uh, to send the economy into into a, a collapse from from spending too much. So he was looking for ways to reduce spending, and, and nuclear weapons seemed like a, pr a pretty good one. Like, you don't have to spend that much on the military if you have all these nukes. Um, and so so the, idea, the idea being um, basically that, that uh, any kind of conventional war would be irrelevant if we had nuclear weapons. Right. So we didn't, we didn't have to – we could cut that spending – and 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 there and there was this competition at the time between branches of the military like the air force wanted to control nuclear nuclear weapons or the the nuclear stockpile um but then comes the development of the polaris missile by the navy uh which forces the air force to go to go and sort of um and and figure out how how are they going to respond because the polaris said basically our nuclear subs are are better than your planes they're they don't require carriers they can be anywhere in the world at any time the only problem was that there weren't 
as accurate. And so they, the, the Navy doctrine was that we should use these nuclear weapons as a second strike, as a, as a deterrent, not a first strike, which was suicide, which was the Air Force plan. Uh, and the Air Force response to that was sort of that retaliation isn't enough, uh, that we need the ability to preempt. And so while acknowledging that it was suicide to launch a first strike on cities, other targets like uh, nuclear bomber bases or missile sites um, would be would be acceptable. And, and the Air Force was more precise in hitting those targets than the Polaris missiles uh, from the Navy. And so in, uh, basically the plan was, we'll stop your invasion. And if, you do, if it doesn't stop your invasion, we're going to hit your cities next. Um, but yeah, so that, that there's, there's this game going on behind the scenes within the military of people who just are anxious to use these weapons to have them. So this was, um, so that, that guy, uh, Curtis LeMay. Bombs away LeMay. Bombs away LeMay. That is a fantastic nickname. He was, um, kind of infamous, right? And he, he was, uh, he was one of the, uh, the guys kind of leading this, leading this whole charge. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, the movie Dr. Strangelove or, uh, how, how I learned to stop worrying and love the atomic bomb. Um, you know, when, when that came out, some of the, some of the, um, the people who were involved, you know, militarily and within the scientific community, um, with these weapons, you know, they went and saw that and they were like, uh, I, I believe there's a quote, um, from, uh, from, uh, one of the scientists on the atomic energy commission who later saw that movie. And he said that that was, that was a documentary like that, <laughs> that, uh, just level of like almost comedic, um, you know, warmongering and brinksmanship and just cavalier attitude towards annihilation, uh, was just, uh, rampant uh, during this time, as you know, the the U.S. was developing its nuclear arsenal and and its ways to to deploy these these weapons of uh, of mass death. Um, so it's it's it is uh, scary to think about. I mean, it is uh, this is definitely uh, all too human um, sort of bind that we've put ourselves in through our own, uh, just aggression and, uh, and fear and arrogance. It's arrogance to think that we can control this, this technology, uh, suitably. Yeah. Ar- arrogance is a great word. We have the ability to destroy the fucking world and the arrogance to think that we, that we won't do it, that we're capable of not doing it. Yeah. So, so I think that, I think that, is a great place to leave off. I think so too. Um, coming up in the next episode, we will we'll talk about uh, you know some of the close calls that uh, this arrogance that Walker was talking about led us into. Uh, we'll talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, as well as uh, t- a lot of other you know, accidents um, and mishaps that could have led us to the brink. And we'll get to. Uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and, uh, and what happened after that with their thousands of nukes that were now uh, in a stateless um, place of anarchy. 
Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original music by Dialman. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your casts, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you'll get access to premium episodes, which will often be interviews with politicians, candidates, reporters, authors, and professors. So, if you can, please pitch in at patreon.com slash gildedage. 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 Gildedage.